You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And tonight we look at verses 22 through 30. Matthew chapter 12. We begin reading with the 22nd verse. The Bible says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Let's ask our God's blessing on his word tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for my brothers and sisters, their faithfulness to you. Lord, it is a joy to my heart to see their love for our Savior. We gather to sing your praises. We gather to encourage each other. We gather to give, we gather to receive through the reading of the Scriptures and Lord, even the prayers that are offered edify us. And we thank you for all of these corporate means of grace that you've established for the good of your people. And that includes, Lord, where this service centers, and that is the reading and the explanation and the application of your Word. And so would you meet with us in this next hour to deal with our hearts and lives in this next section of the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in these days. Thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives. Our desire is that your grace would be more and more evident in the life and witness of this congregation and in the life and witness of each one of us. Our desire is to be more like our Savior each day. So, Lord, would you allow even tonight to contribute to that desire and to that end. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we follow Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that the intensity of the opposition to Jesus grows stronger and stronger. What began in the form of questioning has now reached the point of 
stated conclusions. They have come to some decisions. They have voiced their decisions regarding Jesus. I'm talking about the religious leaders of the Jews. I'm talking about the Pharisees. The battle lines are fixed. We see this happen in our own world. There comes a point where those who who are operating with evil motives become emboldened in their evil and they no longer have reservations about just openly stating their viewpoints. Maybe for a time, the opponents of Jesus attempted to be perceived as neutral. Maybe for a time, even they attempted to be perceived as friendly to John the Baptist and maybe even initially to Jesus. Think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees coming out for the baptism of John. There's the appearance of a friendliness toward what he's doing. John rebukes them and calls them a brood of vipers. And as Jesus and others identify the true character of these false religious leaders, they are eventually forced by the truth, by the power of God, by the exposure of their true character, to just take the mask off. And that's what they're doing in our verses. They're being unmasked. They're taking the mask off. That's disturbing. I mean, when you see the ugliness of evil, it is disturbing. But at the same time, there's something good in it. Now men are able to see what God has known all along. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. God is never in doubt about mine and your spiritual condition. He's never in doubt about the spiritual condition of any human being. So when evil people unmask themselves, all that is happening is we are now seeing in the human realm what what God has always known to be true. What also becomes apparent is there is no middle ground in the spiritual realm. When R.C. Sproul preached these verses, he entitled his sermon, A War Between Kingdoms. He's exactly right. That's exactly what our Lord expresses here. You have a war going on between kingdoms. Either you're with Jesus or you're against Him. Either you're gathering with Him or you're scattering. But there is no middle ground. There's nowhere else to stand, either with Him or against Him. Just recognize where you are and declare where you are. And so as we look at these verses tonight, this is the weighty question that comes to each one of us. Which side of the divide am I on? Not which side of the divide do others think that I'm on? Which side of the divide am I truly on? Does God know me to be on? Where do I stand with Jesus? Because if I don't know Him, if I don't really know Him, if I don't love Him, then even though I would not perhaps say it or even believe it, God is telling me in these verses, I actually stand against His Son. If I'm not with Him, I'm against Him. This divide is put before us in these verses in in four parts. And so as we walk through these four parts, we're going to see this divide manifested. First of all, you see an amazing miracle. An amazing miracle in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. 
I've said it to you before, but when our Lord was on the earth and during the apostolic era, what, what actually is going on is, is due to God providing signs regarding the true identity of His Son and then signs associated with those through whom the New Testament revelation was being given, there was a time in which it's like the veil is pulled back on what men and women can't see with their eyes. If we had met this man in a different time in human history, we might have simply thought there was something wrong with him uh, that could be explained medically. Why is this man blind? Why can't he speak? And perhaps we would have thought the, the answer to our question, the solution would be found in the medical realm. There's no doubt that some people suffered ailments and it was not due to demon oppression, just due to the physical ailments that people deal with under the curse in a fallen world. But in this case, the Holy Spirit of God lets us know through Matthew what this man's problem was. Jesus, in fact, brought to light what this man's problem was. He was a demon-possessed man. And his blindness and his inability to speak, perhaps also he was deaf, was due to the fact that he was demonized. He was demon-oppressed. He is brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him, verse 22, so that the mute man spoke, and he saw. This is astounding. A man who was blind can now see. A man who could not speak now speaks. He is completely whole. He is in his right mind. Once again, we, we see two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, and once again, the authority of Jesus over the kingdom of darkness is proven. It is demonstrated because He sets these people free. Well, that amazing miracle produces an astounded crowd. This is the second thing you see, verse 23. An astounded crowd. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, can this man really be the son of David? ESV has amazed. They were amazed. The LSB astounded. Existem is the word. It's a strong word. One lexicon has this. To cause someone to be so astounded as to be practically overwhelmed. To astonish greatly, to greatly astound, to astound completely. And then the standard lexicon has this. To be amazed, to be astonished. The feeling of astonishment mingled with fear caused by events which are miraculous, extraordinary, difficult to understand. There, there's in this word not only the sense of awe, but being overwhelmed. So that in this miracle, what is produced in the people who saw it was both wonder and uneasiness. Wonder, but at the same time an awareness that this represents a power that's otherworldly. This is nothing we are familiar with. And so what that produced was the voicing of a possibility that in fact was a reality. And that is, could this be the son of David? Can this man really be the Messiah? Is what they mean. And they're actually following the evidence to its logical and right conclusion. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David. But that astounded proclamation touched a nerve with some men who were very afraid that the crowds would come to that conclusion. And that's the Pharisees. 
So that the third thing you see, this, this amazing miracle, these, this astounded crowd, leads to a prejudiced explanation for the miracle. How do you explain the miracle? One explanation is this is the Messiah. That's the right explanation. But the Pharisees didn't want that to be the explanation accepted. So what do they do? Well, they begin to work the crowd. They begin to suggest an alternative explanation that Jesus is going to make clear is full of bias. It's not an honest explanation. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons, except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? We saw last week when Jesus healed that man with a withered hand of the synagogue on the Sabbath, we made the statement that the Pharisees condemned themselves by seeing that as an opportunity to accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath. When they see the man with the withered hand and they see Jesus in the same room on the Sabbath day and they think to themselves, He's going to heal him. And in so doing, He's going to violate the Sabbath. We'll have something to charge Him with. The very way they're reasoning is a testimony against themselves because it evidences what they know. Remember what we saw? What does that say? They, they know that His healing powers are real. This is not make-believe. This is not sleight of hand. This is not some sort of magician in a public setting convincing people of things He wasn't doing. This is a man with a withered hand to produce a whole man right there in their sight, right there before their very eyes. You can't fake that. They know the powers are real. They know that He can perform these miracles at will, whenever he wants to. This is why they see the situation and say, he's going to do it. Because they know that he can do it if he wants to do it. They know that his compassion for people is real. So that such a, a circumstance provides a situation in which Jesus has proven exactly what he's going to do. He'll heal a man in such a condition. And with all that being true, real miracles, on demand, that evidence the love of God, compassion for people, they know also that their views of the Sabbath are out of step with His views of the Sabbath. So if He's right, if the power is the power of God, then they are wrong and in fact are in need of salvation. I mean, they are not just wrong, they are way wrong. Well, you find something very similar here. What will they do with a demon-possessed man who is now free, liberated? One more instance in which Jesus sets people free like this. What will they do with it? Well, 
They can't deny that it's supernatural. They don't try to deny that it's real. They don't want to consider that He really is the Son of David because if He is the Messiah, then they are really wrong. So you only have one other explanation. If this is not the power of God, it has to be some other kind of power. And that's where they land. That's the argument they want to make. That these things taking place in the world that have never been seen before and have never been been seen since, not only what He does, but the volume of these events. I mean, there's just an explosion of the supernatural. Their argument is what you're witnessing is the work of Satan. Beelzebul, name of a Philistine deity. The Jews rightly associated that with Satan. He's not the Messiah, you see, Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's a deceiver. He works in league with the serpent. That's what they are attempting to sell. By the way, I know you know this, but let this sink in. If what they're saying is true, you don't just have a deceiver. You have a deceiver unlike anyone the world has ever seen. It's not like you're either the son of God or a deceiver. You're either the son of God or the greatest son of the serpent who has ever lived. In fact, what you're doing by the power of Satan outstrips anything that any servant of God has ever done. And so you have polar opposite explanations for the kinds of miracles on display in this scene. Is this the power of the Spirit of God or is this explained by the prince of the demons. So what does Jesus do? He answers their slander in verses 25 through 30. He he answers in a way that demonstrates the absurdity of their thinking. He answers in a way that leaves people with no sound conclusion except He is the Messiah. And in fact, in in a great bit of irony, the first answer that he gives is the fact that he can answer. Notice verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, he said to them. Apparently they're working the crowd out on the edges. They're on the periphery. They're out away from Jesus. He doesn't hear what they are saying. He knows what they are saying. Because he knows their thoughts. Think about this. He is answering the charge that he's in league with Satan by displaying an attribute that Satan doesn't possess. When you talk about omniscience, the ability to know everything, Satan does not possess that attribute. That's that's an attribute of God. Omnipresence, God alone has that attribute. All-powerful omnipotence, God alone has that attribute. And omniscience, to know the mind of man with absolute accuracy, that is an attribute of God. If Jesus works in league with Satan, how does He know your thoughts? Because that's an attribute of God. And this is not the first time that Jesus demonstrates that attribute. 
John 1.47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now you know by what's about to follow. I'm going to read the rest of it in just a moment. Jesus is not just saying, I saw you over there. No, he knows this man in a way that is supernatural. And Nathanael recognizes that. Listen, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What did Jesus put on display that Nathanael recognized to be an attribute of the Son of God? He knows what only God can know. John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, that is not describing some sort of intuition like you and I possess or even some kind of knowledge like you and I possess. This is some special kind of knowledge that testifies to His deity and testifies to His identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah. Matthew 9, 1, we saw this earlier in Matthew, and getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to His own city. And behold, some people brought to Him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. By the way, this also explains, doesn't it, how Jesus makes statements like that. How He's able to say to someone, brought to Him on a bed, your sins are forgiven. The man didn't say anything. But Jesus knows the man's faith. He knows the man's thoughts. This is why He's able to make such a statement. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? So Satan does not possess the attribute of omniscience, but Jesus demonstrates that attribute. So the very first answer he gives to their absurd reasoning is the fact that he can answer. He's not overhearing them. He doesn't know what they're saying from that vantage point, but he knows what they're saying because he knows their thoughts. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, this is the cause of his answer. And now we get to the content of his answer. Verse 26, verse 25, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What you're charging me with, what you're slandering me with is inconsistent with any scheme to succeed. If Satan aims to succeed, and he does in terms of the kingdom of darkness, you can be sure of this, he's not tearing down his own house. It doesn't matter whether you want to talk about a kingdom or you want to talk about a city or you want to talk about a family where you have internal warring, it is destined to be destroyed. 
A kingdom, a city, a family divided against itself cannot, will not stand. And when you see Jesus casting out demons left and right, when you see men, we think about the demoniacs of the Gadarenes, men who were so demonized nobody could restrain them. And Jesus sets those men free and they're sitting there in their right mind. That kind of work would represent Satan casting out Satan, which would mean he would be divided against himself, which would mean his kingdom will not stand. Satan is not engaging in activity that tears down his own kingdom. You can be sure of that. And so your argument, Jesus says to these men, your argument doesn't make any sense. Is Satan tearing down his own kingdom? But not only is your slander inconsistent with any scheme that seeks to succeed, your slander is also inconsistent with your attitude towards similar efforts. I mean, this demonstrates their bias. Verse 27, And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. Here I am casting out demons, and you say it's by the power of Satan. But your sons, and I think he uses that term in, in terms of like their disciples, their students, their followers, your disciples seek to cast out demons. Do you charge them in the same way? Do you accuse them of the same, being in league with Satan? And if you don't, why not? Why are you charging me with this and not them? And of course, the answer is clear. Their sons don't represent a threat to them. Their sons do not expose their hypocrisy, do not expose their ungodliness, do not expose their lack of the knowledge of Scripture. They're ignorant. The reason why they accuse Jesus of this is because they know they're at odds with Jesus. Jesus is at odds with them. We know both from Scripture and we know from external sources. Josephus, for example. There were itinerant Jewish efforts to exercise demons. Acts chapter 19, verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke, invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They're really magicians in a sense, aren't they? They're mystical in their approach to these things. They recognize there's power when it comes to the name of Christ in the mouths of disciples. But now what we'll do is just take the same name and make use of it. Obviously recognizing there's a power in what they're doing that doesn't exist in what they're attempting to do. This is why they want to access this power. And so they invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What is done in the name of Jesus is different. What Jesus does is different. And you can be sure of this, that what their sons were doing was different than what Jesus was doing. And so when you see what Jesus is doing, and people are truly delivered so that blind men see and mute people speak and deaf people hear, children who, who are thrown to the fire are delivered and set free. When you see the power of God on display through Jesus and you see these impotent efforts carried out by your sons in the name of God are not able to be compared to what Jesus does. And you say what Jesus does is of the devil, but what your sons do is of God. Well, what you've just done, I guess, is in your mind said that the power of Satan is greater than the power of God. As I said, you can be sure of this, what their sons were doing cannot match what Jesus is doing. This is why Nicodemus had to admit, no man can do the things you're doing unless God's with him. We've never seen anything like this. So you're taking, in all likelihood, no display of power. To be sure, a lesser display of power. And you don't associate that with the devil, but you take what Jesus is doing, which is incomparable, and you say that's of the devil. But one day your sons will rise up and be your judges. You'll be condemned by the fact that what you should have known you refuse to know. When comparing what your sons do with what the Son of God does, you should know the difference. But you refuse to see the difference. So your slander is inconsistent with any scheme to succeed. A kingdom doesn't tear itself down. A city doesn't do that. A family doesn't do that. Satan's not going to do that. And you don't apply the same standards to the people who don't expose you. As you apply to Jesus, though what Jesus does is greater than what your sons do. That reveals your prejudice. Third, your slander is inconsistent with the power that's being displayed. What kind of power is being displayed? The power of the kingdom of God. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the proof that what they're dealing with is the kingdom of God is that the strong man is being bound. Jesus uses an illustration, an analogy. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? You enter into a man's house to rob him, there's only one way you're going to carry out his goods. You got to get him out of the way. You got to bind him up. You can't walk out with his goods. You can't plunder his house unless he is bound. But what you're witnessing is the plundering of Satan's house, the liberating of his slaves. The only way this could be done is if Satan is being bound in those situations. Who has the authority to bind Satan? 
Even Michael the archangel didn't dare to pronounce a railing judgment against Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And if Jesus casts out demons every time he meets with them and delivers people who are in such slavery, the only way that can be happening is you are witnessing an authority greater than Satan's. You're witnessing an authority that is God's. And if the kingdom of God has come upon you, then the king is in your presence. Your claims are absurd. What kingdom tears itself down? Why don't you apply the same standards to your sons who don't have this power? And why don't you recognize that this cannot be happening unless someone greater than the devil is in your presence? The authority of the kingdom of God is on display. The king is in your presence. The son of God is standing in your midst. Which leads to a conclusion that Jesus states that's weighty. But thankfully, it is, it is so clear. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. No one can stand in the middle. There is no middle ground. The power of God is now putting people in a position of making a choice. You witness something like this and you have to make a choice. How do we explain it? If it is the power of God, if the Spirit of God explains what we've just seen, then the kingdom of God has come upon us and the King Himself is standing in front of us. The crowds are right. This is the Son of David. And if you don't accept that, you're left with only one other explanation. The one that the Pharisees are trying to sell. That this is the power of Satan. But can't you see that if you accept that explanation, you're in the realm of absurdity? It's absurd. So where do you stand? Where are you at in this great divide? And that's where we are as we come to a text like this. We're standing with the evidence of who Jesus of Nazareth really was and really is right before our eyes in these verses. And the question is, what will we do with it? What do we do with Him? The, the, the question that faces you is just as weighty as the one facing the, the, the people in this crowd and the Pharisees. Where are you standing right now? You see, you're on one side of the divide or the other this moment. There's never been a time when you were not on one side or the other of the ledger. The book of Colossians makes this plain. We were all born into the domain of darkness. When God saved us, He transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. And the evidence of that transference is that you see who Jesus is. And you love Him and you believe in Him. He's your hope. As we saw this morning in His name, the Gentiles hope. You confess along with Peter and every genuine believer. You, you are the Son of God. Is that where you stand? Because there is no middle ground. You're with Him or you're against Him. You're working with Him or you're working against Him. Where will you stand? 
I know you know this, but we need to remind ourselves of this regularly. When you read a text like this and you realize you stand with Jesus, you do know that's mercy, don't you? You do know you were born in such a condition that you would have stood right along with the Pharisees and called light darkness. You would have called God Satan. You would have called truth a lie. It's the mercy of God that opened your heart and opened your eyes to see who Jesus is. Nonetheless, it doesn't lessen human responsibility when when you come to the evidence because we're going to see next Sunday morning these Pharisees stood right on the precipice of the greatest danger anyone could ever face, and that is to sentence themselves to eternal darkness by refusal to see the light. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and any blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. You are standing on dangerous ground when you see what is so clearly from God and you try to say it has some other source. We'll deal with that next Sunday morning. But I ask you as we close and as we pray, where do you stand tonight? Most of us, I know, we're believers. You, by the mercy of God, stand on the right side of that great divide where there is no middle ground. But some, perhaps, sitting here tonight, some hearing me, you've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior. What will you do with the Son of God this very night? Because know this for sure, you're standing somewhere. And if you're not with Him, you're against Him. May God have mercy on such people. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for making the truth about Your Son so clear. Thank You, Lord, for sound reasoning. It is always, if it's sound, in accordance with the truth. And making so plain that every argument raised against the truth of Jesus is absurd. Thank You, Lord, for saving us from our absurdity. Thank You for saving us from our foolishness and the blindness of our sin. Thank You, Lord, for shining Your light into our hearts that we might see the glory of Your face, glory of Your of your nature and character in the face of your Son. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us who Jesus really is and what He did to save sinners like us. Thank you for transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And may we take seriously this week as we leave this place our privilege to be ministers of reconciliation. Even as we heard this morning and were reminded of this morning, Lord, that's our calling. Vengeance is yours. Evangelism is ours. You alone say, but you've entrusted that message to us. So grant us boldness and courage to be faithful with that good news. And may you save many in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.